Hello and welcome to E3, Energy and Efficiency with Emily. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about architecture, building science, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. So welcome back to the podcast, guys. Today we have Mariana with Emu Building Science on with us today to talk a little bit more about her and her adventure into the world of building science and what they do. So I'm happy to have you on. Tell us a little bit more about you, your background. How'd you get into doing some of this stuff? Yeah, um, I joke that I'm a recovering architect. Um, I, I studied architecture at Wash U in St. Louis and then went to University of Sydney and did a master's in design science. Um, which is where I met my partner, Enrico Boni-Lowry, and um, he's also my ex-husband. We um, got married, moved to his hometown in Italy, and opened an architecture studio, which we owned for um, seven or eight years there, and really kind of went down the rabbit hole of sustainable architecture and design, eventually found the passive standard, and d- adopted that as kind of our internal benchmark to replace building code for us. Um, and kind of, I guess, 2015, 16, you know, we were really doing a lot of work with component certification and we felt like a lot of our time on construction sites was spent in training builders anyway. Um, when we moved the company to Colorado in 2016, 17, we became accredited education providers for PHI. And so now we offer the certified passive house tradesperson course. Um, and it used to be in person and that has changed rapidly (laughs) over the past few months. But, um, so now we have an online course for that with, uh, workshop follow-ups that we're now hosting outdoors instead of indoors and a whole bunch of other changes, (laughs) um, due to the pandemic situation. But Yeah, I'm sure that hands-on training uh, got a whole lot harder for you guys during the pandemic. And and I know that there will be a lot of people who are really excited to get back to the in-person training because, um, as I was saying to you, I took the Certified Passive House Consultant uh, and Designer course, and I had wanted to take the builder course. And I think that every builder and every architect should take the builder course where you actually get to work with some of the materials and take apart wall systems, put together wall systems see how some of those tapes work or how a system works or you know where the best place to install something within a component might be um and i find i don't know if all architects are hands-on learners but i'm definitely a hands-on learner and so i had wanted to take that course and it was it was just really difficult didn't work into my schedule at the time so i sort of joked that if someday i'm going to come out and take your class so um it's well, hopefully been- we're going to have more pod workshops happening around the country. We've got trainers that kind of um, do a train the trainer situation with us where they come shadow us. And then um, the, the passive pods, which is the hands-on part of it, is kind of an extension of the textbook that we then license out to those trainers to be able to do classes all over the country, hopefully. So, yeah, I think that is awesome. So having so those localized based places where you can do that is going to be really cool because that's always been some of the downside to some training is that you have to be in a certain place. So um, I lucked out that I took the passive house training when I was living in New York, but you know, from Maine to go to New York to take the passive house training was just a lot more work. And so it's like, okay, well, 
the one time a year when they come to Boston or they come to Maine, like, does this work in my schedule and a lot more coordination. So I love the idea of you doing the passive pods with certified trainers in, in other areas, because there must be some training facilities that would be pretty easy to, to do that from. And you guys have worked well, we out the course material. Yeah, we can actually do it from my conference room now. Although with the pandemic stuff, I'm really trying to, um, you know, last week we were up in the Teton region and there's this beautiful outdoor pavilion. So we're covered from the weather if it should, you know, luckily there wasn't any, but, um, you know, we can do them on construction sites. We can do it in a conference room. The whole pod kind of comes as a turnkey unit. So less, um, less intense than trying to do wall mock-ups and things like that. Uh, it's really our way of kind of, um, you know, extending the textbook in the sense that there are lessons in the pod that the students are learning. You know, we design in a thermal bridge that needs to be mitigated and, you know, they, they have to install a window and there's mechanical ventilation outlets that they need to install. And all of those relate back to lessons that they have already taken in the coursework. And so they're trying to recall information and that that's where the hands-on really becomes a great learning tool because you're using it to really solidify the implementation of this theory that you've learned and you know the the tradesperson class they call it the tradesperson class but it's for you know for builders contractors i think the strength of it is that it's really the learning objectives are really more on um sequencing and quality assurance and you know when should red flags be going off in your head about i've got this set of drawings from this architect and i can't redline it what am I going to do? You know, um, that kind of a thing. So the, the pod workshop is really meant to kind of solidify a lot of that classroom knowledge into lessons that correspond with it. I think there must be a really good translation there too, between, oh, that might've been what the architect was drawing in their 2D drawing. Cause this is another thing that I've been thinking about doing recently. And I've talked to a couple of builders and I'd love to see happen is putting QR codes on a drawing set that shows an eight minute video of somebody doing that installation, right? Because you show up with your pod and they have to either fix something or put something together. And they're like, oh, I get it. Okay. That's where that tape goes. Because it's really hard to show that in a two-dimensional drawing and you're, sure. you know, you're kind of calling it out and you're labeling it, but it's not easy to say like this detail is going to be tricky or hard or that, you know, here or there is like, oh, that looks all neat and well and good and on, on the plans. And, you know, then you get some pushback and like, oh, well, it was easy to draw. And I'm like, yeah, well, some things are easy to draw and hard to install, but you still should have to do it. But there must be some correlation between the them learning how to do the passive pod and going like oh okay I get it now I know what I was looking at and um well there's also kind of the opposite direction like you know a lot a lot of uh builders will get the majority of their building science kind of information from the manufacturer's reps when they're showing them how to use that product and you know, there's a, a, a range of quality and in information you're getting, they're selling a product, right? Um, and so what I think is really interesting is to see the guys come out of the class and be able to, to kind of answer the why better. So instead of, yes, you can always go find, you know, the product rep who's going to show you how to implement that 
particular piece of tape and how it, you know, interacts with this other material next to it or whatever. Um, but when they get the information from you, the architect, they need to be able to kind of know the underlying reasons and mechanisms behind why they're deciding one thing versus another, because then that gives them the power to have more impact on the budget you know, if I know that I'm choosing this product over this product, but I'm not risking any huge, big liability, um, right. that's important. Yeah. Cause we often get that like, Oh, can I switch this with that? And some things are apples to apples and some things are apples and oranges. And you're like, absolutely not. And here's why you can't do that, which is really excited about doing the, doing it to the passive house level is that you've started to really think through the science behind what you're doing. It's like, you know, it's not just, Oh, we're going to tape this and air seal it. Because if you could just put tape on everything and that was the perfect solution, people would just put ice and water shield around the whole house and they would seal it in and that would be the end of it. But that's not a durability like that. That's the worst idea ever. You know, that that's a durability issue and, and everything else. And so to be able to say like, oh, this is, you know, this is equal to that or, hey, can we change this detail to here? Because I did the pod class and when we installed this this way, it went really smoothly and it went well. And I think that's going to be a better solution for this because when you get stuff from a manufacturer, they haven't thought some of them have and some of them have great resources and lots of details but in some cases they haven't thought through your unique situation like is it a double stud wall is it a is it a wall that has outsolation is it is that some kind of larson truss i mean there are so many involved with that yeah and so knowing the product knowing the architect knows the products and putting them together and then you've taken that extra step to know how those things then work makes so much I don't know, it makes it much more durable that you don't have to worry about it. Because that's the one thing that we do worry about is as building science gets better, as you're building passive house level buildings, the details become okay. even more critical. Yeah, right. In that 1800s farmhouse that didn't have any uh, insulation in it, it just dried right out. Is it terrible? Absolutely. It costs you so much money to, to heat it. You're cold all the time. It's breezy. It's, you know, it's not comfortable. Yeah. But as far as durability goes, it dries out. It doesn't stay wet. You know, now we have these really thick walls and the walls are wet and how's the moisture getting out of it? And, you know, is the moisture going to come out at one of your poor tape seams because you chose to, you know, install something or, um, I love on the Instagram community when somebody shares something like, well, who thought this was a good idea? And like the, the Tyvek is lapped the wrong direction. Like you, you sort of feel like that was... <laughs> That was, that was like, you got into building 101, like things lap in a certain direction, but you know, it still, it still happens everywhere. And so, yeah, one of, one of Enrico's favorite things to show is, you know, we have all these samples for, we get manufacturers donate a lot of different samples so that we can show them in class. And, um, I think it's, there's a, a new sample from, oh, I'm going to say it wrong so I won't but um it's a wood fiber board and it's tongue and groove and he's always joking about how many times we see tongue and tongue and groove and groove <laughs> you know I mean there's so there's the 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 installation side of it but I think um you know speaking to what you said before that the bigger element is the the why you know and why am I doing it in the sequence why am I putting this here because they're not you know a builder and an architect and, and not all architects are like you, right? So they're getting a, a range of quality and drawings from architects, I'm sure. sure. 
and you know a range and competency of the building science but what that means is it's leaving the builders with the liability and the risk to make sure that that they are doing that so that the client's not going to come back to them i mean if you look at just the structure of kind of how insurance works in this comp in this industry and construction defects the builders take the brunt of it but what's happened over time is that building codes have developed in a siloed fashion so that now we're in this situation where the energy code um, doesn't necessarily have as much integration integration as it should with mechanical ventilation considerations and everything else and so the closer we get to zero the closer we get to high performance the more all of that is so integrated with each other and you can't ignore it um, so Part of it is that liability and risk factor that builders really need to just be protecting their own backs on this stuff. Um, but the other part is that, you know, most, especially in, in your community, the BS and beer folks, you know, I feel like most of the guys that I've talked to in that group uh, take pride in their craft and, and want to be able to offer something that is comfortable and healthy. And, you know, the reality of the situation is that a lot of people are used to being in really bad buildings <laughs> and um, the comfort and health kind of argument to passive is really what I think sets it apart. Um, you know, the energy efficiency is a nice bonus to it. Um, and certainly the durability from the standpoint of like protecting yourself as a builder, huge, obviously, but in the, in the selling of it to a client, really the value you're communicating is that comfort and health for the occupant. Yeah. And as much as we talked about how COVID is affecting your in-person training and business, um, I feel like COVID is also giving people the opportunity to start thinking about their health and their homes and spending sure. so much time in their homes. And, you know, like I know, um, people who have listened to the podcast know that I moved my office to the basement because I was having this crazy VOC issue in the upstairs room that, uh, that I was using. And it turns out it's a, I still don't know where the VOCs are coming from, but it's directly related to the door to my utility room, whether it's open or closed in the lower level. But anyway, I moved my office to the lower level. So it's technically basement space and main is not overly hot. I think it was like 69 degrees today, but sometimes the humidity is like 80 or 90%. And so everybody wants to leave their windows uh -huh. open, but the, but the humidity level is really high. And so I moved my office down here, you know, I got the, one of these stupid things, you know, it's down here. Okay. Yeah. I think all of us do, you know, yeah. building, yeah. Building, I have a Yoohoo and some other uh, monitors. We have, a, just, we have a colleague that's got the one that's portable and he keeps it on his belt loop all the time. <laughs> goes to conferences with it. So he sits in conferences and he's like, this room is, <laughs> Oh, Oh my gosh. I don't think I could even do that. Cause if you took your CO2 <laughs> tester in into like basically any conference, you're like, Oh, no wonder everybody's sleepy. Like the air quality in here is terrible. And you know, uh, all of this stuff. Um, I was working with a friend of mine on an energy star, uh, project where the client owned a, a big building, put a huge solar array on, wanted to take advantage of energy star for his building. And, um, we've been working on it now for several years till we got the mechanical system and then ventilation to something that we were comfortable with. Like it passed energy star years ago by the efficiency improvement, but we needed to know that the mechanical, cause we did all of, you know, we tested out all the systems. And so he would go back and the, you know, the mechanical guy would adjust it and then it wasn't quite right. And it, you know, so they ended up 
taking quite a long time to figure out how to get the ventilation perfect. So I don't even know, I'll probably just even avoid taking a CO2 test or to any kind of <laughs> um, gathering because you just know, almost always know that it's, that it's bad. And it's not something that people have considered in their houses, like, oh, an ERV is a luxury. And I'm like, no, ERVs and ventilation are now required. And what kind of training do we need to do for homeowners to remind them that, A, you, you can't just turn it off. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe in the summertime with low level humidity and whatever, you can turn it off and do whatever, but turn it back on when you're, you know, so there's, it's just better to not turn it off and know how to use it. And um, I had one that the the contractor set it to run at max volume, but these people moved into a brand new house in the middle of the summer with 100% humidity for like six weeks. And so the heat pumps were trying to combat the fact that the ERV was just dumping really humid air into the house. They're like, it's like a swamp in here. I'm like, that's a brand new house. It's already wetter than normal because it hasn't dried out yet. And now you're pumping hundred percent humidity and trying to cool it down. Like, of course it's wet in here. So we went through all of that, but with COVID, I'm hoping that people are starting to think about the health inside their houses. And here through the BS and Beer Show, some of the most popular ones that we've done have been on mechanical because I feel like as a building science community, mechanical is probably the one place where we, as a whole group, architects, builders, et cetera, um, don't have as much knowledge. And as we're improving that, and then I say that as the BS and Beer group, but then I look back and I think, what are standard builders and sure. architects yeah. doing? Like people who aren't even thinking about the building science and the codes are improving. Mm -hmm. And so knowing more about building science means that as the codes improve, hopefully the durability, like you said, with the risk with these contractors is there's durability issues where you're like, oh, I was just meeting the code. Well, sometimes just meeting the code with the wrong products in the wrong areas means you've created an issue you didn't previously have. And I think that's some of the reason why there's been pushback to stricter energy codes because we don't understand or not that was a collective we. Uh, <laughs> the general whole population of building don't understand the implications okay. of, you know, and so you can get this great information from the manufacturer, but you'd have to maybe know what you were asking for from the product rep. So okay. if you don't know to ask for the perm rating of whatever material you're using, you may not know that's even, or like zip system, the, the green part of zip system is really vapor open, but OSB is not so vapor open. So it's like, uh, it works great in some situations and not in others. So. Yeah, I think we see a lot of uh, relief on the faces of builders. Once we go through the mechanical ventilation unit, um, I think ERVs, HRVs, are this mystical thing if you've not used them before, but really what's great about them is they're so much more simple than the traditional systems we're used to using. I mean, it's kind of just a box with a couple of fans and filters and then a honeycomb in the center that's exchanging stuff. Um, really, really simple. In fact, I've, I'll, I'll post it to Instagram after this, but we we took one apart at the uh, at this project we went to go visit last weekend in, the, in Jackson Hole. So I'll put our little video of us explaining what the parts of it are, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's I, like my background was design, right? I did not, I, I don't, I did not, not ever claim to be a contractor builder, you know, 
even on the construction science side of stuff, that was never my strength. I was always the one doing the business, the communications, the marketing and the design side of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I've had this weird career path where um, the majority of my professional career was abroad and in passive. So I get ERVs and HRVs, but I don't really get traditional systems in America very well. <laughs> and, and so, um, I don't know, it's just been, it's been really rewarding to see, um, there's just the light bulb that goes off that they are simple systems. And especially because, once you learn all the stuff about what goes into the envelope of a high performance building and you learn, <clears throat> excuse me, you learn how integrated that mechanical ventilation system really needs to be in order to keep indoor air quality high. Um, you, you don't have to rely as much on these complicated things, you know, and um, yeah, anyway, I, I, that's kind of one of the, one of the silver linings that I see in it. <laughs> yeah, you're totally right. I mean, I think in some cases it's the animal that, you know, um, for sure. But, um, when I was doing a bunch of energy consulting, so when the market was really terrible to be an architect, like back in 2009, I was doing a lot more energy consulting. I'm like, here's the opportunity for me to learn more about this stuff and become a better architect. So I was doing a lot of energy consulting and, um, we had hired a girl who, who moved here to Maine, um, with her husband from college. Colorado. And she's like, what is this oil boiler thing that you have? Like what, like, what, what is that? Like she just couldn't wrap her head around fuel oil because it's such a weird Northeast thing. And like, they don't have air conditioning here. They don't have forced air systems and they got miles of baseboard and you're thinking about it and looking at it and going like, I can eat a house with two heat pump heads. Like, why do I have 5,000 miles of baseboard surrounding this? Like, how was that not more complicated than, you know? Yeah. We doing... tend to overthink things as an industry. We, we do tend to overcomplicate things sometimes when a lot of times, especially when you've got that as a builder, when you've got that integrated, you've got that good relationship with your designer so much can be mitigated early on in the process. You know, it's just communication. I mean, if the designer knows your sequencing concerns better and your budget concerns better, then they're going to cater to that. And if you know what the designer's trying to accomplish better as a builder, you can help direct, you know, where to go with that. But a lot of it's just kind of dumbing down systems, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think, um, Casey said a couple of weeks ago when he was in the podcast that it's like 80% communication and 20% actual skill, like 80% of what we do is learning how to communicate with each other and being good people to work together. And when you find those teams and it's like magic, you're like, Oh, this is what it's supposed to be like, you know? And I always wonder if, um, you know, from a female perspective, if it was that I was a woman and I was afraid to ask because you didn't want to look silly, or if it was just the new architects are afraid to ask because you don't want to look silly, you know, everyone's like, oh, you know, the architect, they should know everything, but really yeah. we don't, we need to be trained just like everybody else. I, I will say the, the teams that come into our class with the designer and the builder together are the ones that have the most success afterwards with their first projects because they're starting on the same page. They're speaking the same language. You can tell that they're, you know, early in the concept stage, the designer's bringing in the builder for input. Um, and, you know, later in the build stage, the design, the builder doesn't feel like they can't go back to the designer and ask if the intentions are being met, you know? And yeah. I think what, you know, the, this last class we had just last week in the Tetons was great. Um, 
you know, in, in the pod workshop, we have these like job role simulations that we do. So there's a supervisor for each team and there's like an air sealing sub and an insulation sub and there's roles that they have to fulfill. But a big part of that is really just to accomplish high performance, whether it's passive or not, any, any high performance construction goals that you have rely on that team integration. So if you are not ready to behave as a supervisor and sit down everybody at the table and talk about the plan and make sure everybody knows what their role is going into it ahead of time, it's a very large hurdle for especially low skill labor to, to then meet your expectations. Um, so we really try to emphasize talking about the things that are going to happen first, making sure everybody understands the plans, looking at a section and being able to put that red line in for your air, bar air barrier. Like, does everyone understand where that is? Cause we need to not penetrate that, <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> well, that and yeah, that's really important teaching that, you know, is a critical because you find that when you get on a job site, you do have a lot of subs. And if all the subs understand the, what the, important thing is to happen. You don't end up with, you know, giant holes from your roofer through the side of your sheathing that didn't get, you know, patched over because, hey, they put their pipe staging through that. And it, like you, you have somebody on the team who's monitoring air sealing, or you have somebody who's, and everybody on the team's like, oh yeah, this is a high performance house. And so, you know, we, we built one and um, the people that put it up, it was a panelization project and it, the panels came from unity and we put this house up and the builder was so excited. And I showed up with my blower door and he's like, what needs taped? What do we need to do? <laughs> like we're going around and that's super exciting because you have people that on the team or everybody on the team, we're working on a new project now where we have, um, we're trying to eliminate as much petroleum based products as we can in this house for health reasons. And, um, the homeowner said, you know, I just want to talk to your whole team and all the subcontractors before we get started, just so they understand why we're doing this. Because yeah, there could be an easier way to, to do something, but there's a, there's a valid reason of why we're doing it. And that if I mention it to everybody and somebody wasn't here that day, or somebody just decides to do something, you now have however many other people who heard that and were like, oh, wait, hold on a second. Maybe we shouldn't do that. Like, let's think about how we're going to approach it. And so I was like, oh, you know, it doesn't need to be the homeowner in every situation. This is a particular situation, the homeowner. But like, if you start out a project that way where everyone on the team, then that's really integrated design. Um, and I don't know if you've listened to the building science podcast that positive energy does, but you know, he said truly integrated design is not integrated between the builder and the architect. It's also integrated with the mechanical staff and all of the subcontractors. And it's like, yeah, like sure. it's really hard. And I feel bad because, you know, it's, it's bad enough that, um, the architects and builders who, who don't, you know, communicate with each other, but I feel really bad for the mechanical people who are left with, how do we figure out how to get this from point A to point B to meet the needs of what we do? And I feel as a design professional, um, and, and maybe this, cause you can build houses without design professionals is, you know, I feel most bad for the mechanical people because that doesn't always get thought through during the design well, process when it's easier to figure out how yeah. all of that integrates. When I think that the, you know, for all the mechanical people listening, please do some training in passive because what we find with, with folks that builders that go down the passive um, path, 
um, find that it's easier for them not to engage in someone mechanical because it's easier for them to just have control over it because of the integration between envelope and mechanical. Mm -hmm. But that's not necessarily good either. We just need to have more educated roles that know um, what responsibilities are within their scope um, and then have better communication between them. But I will say we have a definite underrepresentation of mechanical folks in the class. So there definitely needs to be, and, and I think there's a huge market for HVAC people and MEPs that really get low load buildings. I think there's a huge market for MEPs and uh, installers who understand low load buildings because it's it's coming more towards that as the as the code gets better. But also, um, you know, the joke is sort of like even even people in the field who understand HVAC don't really ever understand the V in HVAC and ventilation is is so critically important. It's um, somebody said it's the lungs of your building. And if you start thinking about it that way, it's like your your lungs filter out, you know, all the stuff that's there and helps your body work. Like if we start thinking about our homes as if they're body systems, then I'm glad you said that because one of the big things in our training that we always try to say is, you know, you get this um, kind of old school mentality of the walls need to breathe. And, you know, do you breathe through your skin? No. So, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a lot of comparisons that can be made to kind of how a living system works, right? And definitely the ERVs and HRVs are fantastic because they behave as the lungs of that being, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And there are so many ways to, to think about that as it relates together, because if some part of your body isn't working really well, then it's, you know, it makes it. And so if we're just choosing to kind of ignore some part of that structure, then, you know, and as climate change happens and it gets warmer as farther and farther up the coast or, or that we're starting to see different weather patterns and stuff in areas, those things become more important. Like 10 years ago, I wasn't talking about humidity in Maine. Maybe it was my lack of knowledge and maybe it was because I feel like the last couple of years, it's just been a lot more humid in the summer than it had been previously. And now we have to, to deal with some of those issues because it was always the joke like, oh, you don't need air conditioning in Maine. We don't air condition anything. But now high performance buildings and ventilation and mold growth and people's health and that's become some of the most important parts that you want to educate homeowners on is, you know, well, it's been good to see that coming from the homeowner side more that the, just the awareness to talk about indoor environmental quality, indoor air quality. Um, and that's why I said, you know, at the beginning, the energy efficiency part of passive is great and nice and good bonus. Yay. Happiness. But the thing that I see being the real potential of the passive standard as a substitute for code in many senses is the way it handles indoor environmental quality. And as far as indoor environmental quality, and so this is this is uh, the the passive question that I have is, you know, you don't necessarily have products that are off the table, right? So. Um, Actually, a lot of times you do more than you would think. Yeah. So how are people dealing with, you know, spray foam or a lot of the foam based stuff that meet the standards to, to achieve comfort levels of what 4.75 BTUs per square foot or whatever it is, depending on the part of the country that you're in. Um, but how, how are those foam based products starting to affect the health Mm -hmm. which has more to do with ventilation and indoor air quality now that we're starting to get um, more interested in actually understanding the indoor air 
that we have, even like moisture is the one thing that we talk about a lot because it's probably the biggest one. Um, as far as understanding, I'm not sure it's the biggest risk right now. I mean, getting furniture that comes from, you know, a furniture manufacturer that's filled with formaldehyde in a high performance house that has a, you know, 0.6 ACH could be <laughs> a much bigger problem. But um, do you, are you starting to have um, products and things that you're really saying like, yeah, that might achieve an energy level, but... So there's a few, there's a few, a few things there. Um, first, I think there's uh, a couple of myths to kind of debunk about passive, right? So, uh, <laughs> so a lot of times people associate it with super tight air, you know, super tight air sealed building. Um, and so I'm going to be more concerned about things like VOC coming off of furniture and such, but the actual requirements of the passive standard have to do with the ventilation of the space. So mm -hmm. assuming all the crap in that air, <laughs> you know, how is that being filtered so that fresh, clean air is being supplied to the occupant? Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, ideally, we're also addressing the fact that those VOCs are not brought in in the first place, but that's not something that the passive house standard really deals with. Mm -hmm. So you can reach that performance metric using foam products if you want to. I, you know, I have a lot of concerns with those for other reasons um, and, you know, some of the durability claims around spray foam, things like that. And there's a lot of overlap in the past us community with, you know, folks that are into the concept of natural building materials. Mm -hmm. And that's great. But again, the passive standard does not dictate that. So yeah, you can use foam products to reach passive standard because it's a performance metric like the building code. Right. That's one part of it. The other part that is kind of a myth that we hear a lot is that you need all these specialized products. And that is just absolutely not true. Um, there's a bit of a learning curve. You've got to be a bit creative. And there are a couple of product types that are more limiting than others. Windows, 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 windows. And that influences how you approach that conversation with the clients because you know, in most um, colder climates, windows are going to be a pretty deciding factor as to whether or not you can reach um, certification. And, you know, in the, in the past, Passive was importing a lot of European windows, and there's still some great options for doing that. But luckily, over the past five years, we've started to see, and, and a little bit longer than that, we started to see a lot of American companies popping up and producing um, really high-quality, high-performance windows made in the States. Um, the other area is tapes, tapes and membranes. You know, you're seeing most passive projects are meeting their performance criteria through an integrated strategy of having smart vapor retarders and you know membranes that really understand that that are responding to humidity levels and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, neither of those, if you look at the entire budget of a house, are going to break your bank. It's the communication of how you how you value that. So I think there has to be a mentality shift in how we as an industry communicate the product we're offering. And this is something we talk about in our training. We have a, a whole unit on just kind of the economics of Passive House and, and really it's more about the communication of the value to the client and how to um, help them understand that you are creating a product, you're a product designer basically, um, and you are, you are meeting a certain expectation they have as far as performance. So they shouldn't really be able to go into a line item budget and strike out pieces of that. I mean, we don't do that to any product we buy. You know, right. you buy a car, 
you buy the car, like <laughs> you can pick features like a granite countertop or, a, you know, you can pick features that make that car a little fancier than another car or might make it more comfortable in certain finishes or whatever. Um, but you're not going to go tell them how to re-engineer that car. They're offering that product. Um, and builders need to do that, right? Like you put all this value engineering into a wall assembly don't leave it on that project. <laughs> you know, we, we have to have kind of a, a mentality shift in just how that is communicated. One of the things that I'm impressed with, with the Passos community in New York, for example, is that in the, in the kind of selling of passive in New York, you know, a lot of the stuff that would, that we, that people would, would incorrectly assume is an added cost of building passive are things that just New Yorkers want. <laughs> they want high performance windows because it blocks out the noise from the road. They want it air sealed because it blocks out pests. You know, they want ventilation and, and purified air because it, it eliminates dust. Um, you know, these are just comfort things. These are not, these are not the cost of green building or something. These are just, these are just comfortable building things. And so a lot of times we just teach builders kind of how to, how to reframe what you're selling, right? And that allows you to have more leeway with what you're what you're designing. Yeah, I appreciate you debunking the myths. It's always great to hear that from somebody who is is really in in that industry because that those are things that we hear all the time. And I was like, well, not really, but it's better to hear it coming from somebody who teaches and trains that. And something that I've been saying, uh, so it's funny because I'm just like, well, she clearly listens to me say this all the time on my podcast because I said the same thing is like, you don't go to the doctor and tell the doctor how to do a procedure. You know, like you don't, if the structural engineer comes back and says that you need a nine, you know, nine and a quarter by three and a half inch LVL, you put in a nine and a quarter by three and a half inch LVL. You don't say, well, but what if we, you know, and so we are trying to get to the point where you're talking to the homeowner about what's important to them. And unless they're in the building and construction industry, what's in your wall isn't important. How your wall performs is important. What's in inside your house is important. The ventilation system is important. Like you said, quiet. I mean, people say all the time, they walk into, you know, a high performance house that has, you know, really thick, dense packed cellulose walls. And like, it's so quiet in here. It's like, yeah, you know, it's great. So, it's always hard, I think, for people who are in the technical profession to remember that they, I don't want to say they don't need to know it because I have had a couple of clients who are really interested in the science. And if you want to know it, I will tell you and I'll explain to you why we've done it. And I, usually those people aren't the people who are like, okay, let's, let's take that out of the budget. Mm -hmm. The rest of the people don't care. They want you to talk to them in the things that are important to them. And we buy based on how we feel, not based on, I mean, we always say it's economics. Sure. Everybody has a budget. <laughs> everybody has a budget. Sure. Absolutely. But we buy based on our emotions and how we feel in the spaces and how we want to feel or, you know, like I don't like to dust. So I want to live in a house that controls the dust a little bit better. And that was always the joke when I was doing a lot of energy audits in existing houses. I was like, don't worry if you have cobwebs. It doesn't mean you're a terrible cleaner. It just means that this is where the air infiltration is coming in. And it was a way to say, it's totally fine that there's a cobweb here and I just saw it and you're weirded out by that. But that there's a reason why, and we can address that reason why. And so, um, 
talking to people in terms of the things that, and the level of what they want to know. I mean, but you said earlier something about uh, craft and craftsmanship and the people coming and taking that are taking pride in it. And I'm hoping that we're going to see a shift in the trades now as to, you know, a hundred years ago when people were building and they were be beautiful woodwork and they were doing all this stuff, you know, they, there was a lot of pride in craftsmanship in being in the trades, you know, and, and building things. And then over the last, I don't know how many years, we've had this huge push, like everybody goes to college. You can go to trade school if college doesn't work out. And it's like, no, that's the wrong mentality. Like we need to get into these classes that are, are not trade classes. Like maybe it's a math class, maybe it's a science class and talk about the things that are super cool about the trade. And another thing that came up during COVID is building is still critically important. That wasn't one of the things that went away or that was considered I don't want to say obsolete, but you know, it's still an essential service. It's still an essential service and it's important. And, oh, did our value system just shift a little bit there? Because by the way, these things that are really important all of a sudden become so much more important. Health, shelter, shelters. Yeah. A good one. <laughs> Health, shelter, access to food. I mean, and I asked a friend of ours, uh, so we belong to a CSA. I don't have time as an architect to grow a huge garden, but I grew up in a farm family, so we had a huge garden. So going to the you know farm stand, so we joined a CSA. That's awesome. But people who, um, you know, I asked a friend of ours who does a farmer's market, I was like, are you seeing more people at the farmer's mar markets? It's, you know, your ability to shop outdoors and your ability to buy stuff locally. And when you didn't have access all of a sudden to grocery stores, whenever you wanted and all that stuff, did we start to go back to our roots? Like how many people have been baking sourdough bread for the last like 16 weeks? I know, right? they all live with their sourdoughs the level like, of excitement on my Facebook feed about tomatoes popping out is just insane it's right now. It's crazy, right? <laughs> so I, I'd like to think that we're starting a shift where we're moving away from the traditional um, appraisal and real estate base. Now, I've realized that in order to change the appraisal world, somebody would have to lobby Freddie and Franny to get them to change the appraisal process uh, and how that so works. I have, a, I have a, a little tidbit on that, that since you have a, a lovely audience that will spread the word, then they can yeah. help me. But, uh, <laughs> so yeah. that's something that I'm, I'm personally really super interested in just kind of how we uh, assign value to high performance homes and how kind of messed up that is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I had somebody here in Denver. I was, I spoke at a real estate conference in Denver last year and I had her showing me just what the options are on the MLS listings from the real estate agents perspective. What can, what check boxes can they, you know, put on there? And it's kind of basic. It's like, it's got some green features, you know, um, <laughs> which usually means like a PV panel or something, you know, it's a super, super got a heat pump, hot water tank. Everybody not knows even, what they are now. <laughs> and, um, you know, and so obviously that's not translating to market value because it's not being assigned as a, a luxury feature, a luxury item. What I would love to see is a shift towards having real estate agents check boxing you know, what was the ACH on this house when it was built? Uh, what was the ACH 50? What, um, what kinds of windows does it have? We should be treating windows like, you know, 
like I have a Ferrari, I have these high performance open windows, whatever it is, you know, <laughs> um, those kinds of things can help sell it. And then on the appraisal side of stuff, um, I recently learned about the green addendum, um, which, you know, should be just a no brainer and isn't, um, in Colorado, I think there are four or five appraisers who have even taken the continuing education course on what the green addendum is. So basically my, my call to action is that anybody who's involved in the design build or sale of a high performance home or the financing of it, you know, the appraisal process really needs to include that addendum. And the more everyone on that team, again, integrated team, right? So the more the real estate agent, the mortgage broker, all of those people, the appraiser, the more they know about what they're selling, the more they can assign a value to that. And that, that, you know, helps us be able to continue our work. Right. Right. And that was part of the reason why I wanted to become a hers rater, because I thought that hers could have been a solution. And, and, um, I feel like I've been doing this for 10 years and it still isn't in the MLS because it's a, it's a barrier to sale for people, which I don't think that that should be a way that we should deal with our real estate. Uh, but, um, the hers rater would give the buyer the opportunity to like, now we wouldn't buy a car. Most people don't buy a car without looking at the miles per gallon rating. Um, or, you know, the selling point for a lot of electric vehicles is like, oh, this is how much in gas you'll save every year by, by having or driving an electric vehicle. Now, granted, if you're going to buy an electric vehicle, you should probably know where your electric comes from because it may not be cleaner to be buying coal power and running an electric car than it would have been to run a fairly efficient gas powered vehicle. But that's a side. Um, if there was a way for people to evaluate a house that they were going to build or buy against some of those metrics, that would be, and I thought hers might be it. It doesn't, hasn't seemed to catch on enough. I think they're trying, they're trying to do studies they're trying to do that because the biggest problem that we've had as far as the appraisal and the green addendum, there are a couple of people here in Maine who, who have learned how to do it is that a lot of these houses don't sell because people like them so much, they stay living in them. And so the real estate market then doesn't have anything to use as comparables when right. they have one. So they're right. like, well, yeah. all I have to compare it to is this other three bedroom, mm -hmm. two and a half bath down the street that has 500 more square feet. And I'm like, yeah, but mine costs $11 a month to live in for every utility that's in here. Can you say that about your house? No, your house costs $4,000 a year for utilities. Like that's a huge amount of money to some who's going to buy a house who can potentially afford to finance it as part of their mortgage, but maybe struggles to come up with $4,000 to put fuel oil in their tank when fuel oil goes to $5 a gallon. I mean, our first time home buyer house that my husband and I bought when we first moved to Maine um, was tiny. It was like 12, well, not tiny, but it was, you know, 1200 square feet. So that's like, it's not tiny, but it's small, you know, it was a small house It was built in the fifties. So it was like 1200 square feet, you know, and the one year that we were living there and fuel oil was $5 a gallon. It cost us like $3,000 to heat a relatively small house. Thankfully I had been smart and just been throwing money every month into a fund so that I had a chunk of money when I had to fill my tank because 
you can't just go to the gas station and get like five gallons. Like you have 200 gallons in a tank so that you can go for a month, you know? And so that's a ton of money for somebody to come up with. Whereas, you know, if, if the house behind you, you have to pay CMP like $11, that's kind of like, okay, yeah, got it. You know, that's, and you've already worked out when you bought the house, if you could afford that mortgage and it doesn't really cost you anything to live there. And that's just the economics question that doesn't even account for how comfortable you are in the space and how much you love that house and why you don't want to move because the space just works so well for you. Well, someone who might be an interesting podcast guest for you, I don't know, um, is this gentleman by the name of Craig Foley. He's in Boston and he does a lot of research. Uh, I've only talked to him a couple of times, so I'm like throwing him under the bus here, but um, that's okay. <laughs> um, but he does research on kind of um, market valuations of high performance homes versus their non-high-performance counterparts in various neighborhoods mm -hmm. and so far I think he, you know I've only seen a couple of kind of case study reports that he's issued on it but he's seen a 25 to 27 percent markup on high-performance um, homes like the what they're selling for and so some of that information I think is it should be more interesting or should be more widely spread amongst builders who are you know thinking to go down this path because it changes the whole framework of the economics of what you're doing yeah um and we have so the house behind me on the screen um is in a five lot community um it's a solar community they all have solar panels some of them are net zero the house behind me wasn't quite net zero with 20 solar panels but as you can see it has room for another row of panels it was the test house it was the first one we built um and so um there's another subdivision just up the street maybe a half a mile up the street and we have people from their neighborhood come into our development all the time and they're like this is what i wanted but it wasn't available and technically our houses are smaller but they're super efficient so they're still kind of in the same price range of of what the ones that they bought you know in the other community were and you can literally stand and touch the neighbors like you know they're 10 feet apart and they're like it just wasn't available and so i think some of the pushback is that if if we had the money to keep building it, like this house was so popular when we built it. If I had had the money to be a developer and just built these all over the state, I would have sold a ton of them because people were asking for them, but they weren't available. And a lot of people don't like the build process. They want to just buy something that already exists. And that's for, I think, a number of reasons. One of them being that, um, as a trained architect, I didn't realize that it's like 90% of the population can't understand 2D plans. Like they don't see it in three dimensions. And like, you don't know what you don't know once you know how to see it that way. And so that's just how my brain translates the information. And so like, it took me years as an architect to realize that my clients were not seeing what, I mean, I had somebody say to me in 2018, house is completely done and they're like does it look the way you expected and i was like yes does yeah. it look the way you expected and they're like no but it's so much better and i'm like okay whew. right because <laughs> you're just like whoa so i think that people buy developments and the market said you want 2500 square feet so developers keep building 2500 mm. square feet and that's not necessarily what the market wants but that's what's available and does that I shift agree. Yeah, the there's, narrative? 
there's a lot of research now showing that, um, especially, you know, the younger millennial generation wants a smaller footprint. They don't want to clean a big house. They don't want to maintain a big house. They prioritize efficiency over that. They prioritize um, things like community features in, you know, production home communities. Um, a lot of the communal amenities are valued a lot more than they have been in the past. You know, having garden space, even if it's communal garden space, um, all of those kinds of features. You know, I, I think there's been a, a big shift that the market has taken that builders are are catching up to, um, mm -hmm. simply because it's a you know it's a it's a physical industry, and with physical things like that, you're building something physical. It always takes longer to implement the change to that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's definitely. I think there's definitely a market for it. I think that's one of the things in architecture that too that we don't talk about enough is community or scale and proportion. Like people don't know why they like things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so up here, I don't know if you've been to Maine and been to Freeport. Um, so LL Bean sort of has taken over it, but Freeport was like the McDonald's is in like an 1800s farmhouse. It looks like a farmhouse. Like it just looks like this. And people don't realize why they like walking down the street there because the scale is very human scale. And it's the same with neighborhoods is I have this one neighborhood in Falmouth that's just outside of the city of Portland and it's on the water. So like most of the houses can't see the water, but it's close enough to the water. And they just built a whole bunch of really small, like 900 square feet houses in this development. And like they'll sell for $600,000 or more because this community is so well cared for, so well taken care of. It's access to the water is amazing. Like you can take a walk with your family at the end of the day and walk to the water and around. And so you you don't even have waterfront yourself, but just access to this community. And I mean, they're just a, it's just a pile of tiny little houses all put together and they love it. Houses yeah. never come for sale in this neighborhood because, and then when they do, they're always really expensive because they've created a neighborhood quality. The way the neighborhood functions together is very similar. They know their neighbors, they back up to each other. They don't have lawns. I mean, there was this whole idea of the American dream and this big lawn and not, I mean, I think landscaping and lawn care is like a multi-billion dollar industry because we just have to mow the grass. Like, I'm, looking at, I'm looking at my <laughs> one and a half acres going, how can I take out the lawn? Like, where can I physically take out as much grass as possible? So it's just, it, it's another one of those home ownership things that people don't think about is like, not only do you need to be able to afford the mortgage to live in this house, to be able to afford to live here you have to be able to afford to do maintenance on it you know so if you build something that's less durable you'll replace it sooner or more often and then you have to care for the land surrounding it you know you have to this is Maine. you have to plow your driveway and you have to mow your grass and um so as we cut down on the things we have to do with our houses, like it's not that hard to pull out a filter to clean the core in your ERV. You know, it's pretty simple, like a little reminder on your phone or to <laughs> pull out the, pull out the little filter on the heat pump. Well, one, head thing, one thing that kind of came up with this last group of students. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll put some stuff on our website about it, but it's the most successful handoffs I've seen with, you know, passive houses because 
part of the issue of what builders worry about is will the user, the occupant, mess it up or know how to use it? <laughs> oh, right. Will they yeah. turn it off after you leave? Right. Yeah. They turn off the system or they poke a nail through the air barrier or whatever it is. You know, right. you definitely have to design and build for human error, right? right. You, right. You just, you know, this phone is designed so that I can it would be really hard for me to mess it up, <laughs> you know? <laughs> no. And so that's a consideration that needs to, to take place. And I think a lot of um, good solutions that I've seen are kind of in the graphic communication of that. So every passive house, pretty much every passive house has a technical room, um, you know, where you house the things like the HRV and such. And having just kind of a, a graphic that's like, don't do this you can do this. Don't do this. Yes, you can open windows. Don't turn off this unit, <laughs> you know, because they don't know. It's just, a, it's just a user. It's a, it's a, a consumer of a product. So you have to design the product so that they use it correctly. Yeah, no. And you said earlier something about HVAC and there being a bigger industry uh, within that. And I think that um, one thing that I would love to see, and, and it's come up in the chat box in BS and Beer, is um, people commissioning systems and then coming back to do routine maintenance. So like, you know, you need to take your car in every so often and do some kind of routine maintenance. If you have an right. electric car, you have to rotate your tires. If you've got a gas powered car, you'll have to change the oil and do those things. And you get reminders either from the service center or like, you know, you take it to the dealership or to the guy down the street. Well, the mm -hmm. same is true. I think in high performance homes, especially now as we move into ventilation and mechanical is, is uh, you as a new homeowner, unless you were super into the science of how everything worked, you have to learn a lot of things when you first move into your house, like not just where you're going to put your dishes, but like, how does this work? And I feel like there should be, you know, a move in date, you get those visuals on the wall and you get the, and you get, and you get the whole rundown, but your brain is so full by the time that construction is complete because you've had to make so many decisions over the course of construction to make all this stuff happen is that, I want them to set up a month after you move in, they come back and they clean the filters because that first couple of months after construction, everything is still dirty. No matter how good you do, you're still going to get drywall dust and everything in your systems. And so they need to be cleaned a little bit more often right after you move in. So there's maybe there's a one month follow-up and maybe there's a three month follow-up and then maybe there's a yearly follow-up because even with a heat pump, you have to clean the outdoor compressor occasionally like it's it's a system it needs cleaned and that you maybe it's seasonal for the first year like okay this is what you should be doing with your erv in the summertime when it's this percentage humidity and that a lot of the ervs that we put up here um, and I don't know if they're different in different parts of the country but a, a lot of the ervs that we install up here are based on cold climate so if it was set on humidity and your thermostat said, oh, all of a sudden it's above 60% humidity in here, it would automatically turn to more ventilation, but it might be more humid outside. So increasing ventilation because you have it set on humidity is the wrong direction in the summertime. And so, you know, I'm sure zenders are smarter than that. There are probably different, different ones that are smarter depending on, on how they do it, but if you have a system that does require a little bit of thought or finesse for different types of years that, you know, or 
switching between seasonal. So like this, here's, this is really Maine based, which could be totally unrelated to everything you do in Colorado. But, you know, we have, um, you know, shoulder seasons where it's not humid or too cold outside. And so, you know, leave, leave the RV on. It's not hurting anything if it's running, but open your windows, go ahead, you know, do, do those things. But maybe you need to, if you have heat pumps, maybe they need to be running on dry just to take a little bit of excess humidity out of a space because there's cool surfaces in your basement or something like and then you have air conditioning and then you have heating season and how do those different things affect it and do you have an issue? And so I feel like that would be a really great thing for the mechanical people to stay in touch more often the first year after a house is built as a service contract and then yearly afterwards just to make sure and that um, we've started this whole idea of a house binder where they I was going to have- say, my, my suggestion to all the passive house guys in training is to do a user manual. Yes. Like deliver the house with a user manual. <laughs> yes. They need a house binder and they need either um, b- both a physical binder or they need a USB drive that you plug in that has all of the digital downloads on it that says like, oh, okay, here's who you call if you have this issue or this is the mechanical system that you own or like here's the refrigerator manual, or, like I, whatever it is. Um, and I think that more people should be doing user manuals, house binders, whatever you want to call them that, that somehow get attached to the house so that when you move out or if you sell it, it stays with the house. Like this lives with the house. (laughs) Yeah. I can't believe there's not an app. I haven't seen an app that's in, that's comprehensive enough to cover that, but yeah, there should be like a tattooed QR code in the technical room that associates it with some app that pops up and gives you your user manual. So when you sell the house, they still have it. No, I totally agree. I've been saying the same thing. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Emu building science app, uh, uh, house binder <laughs> <laughs> or a user manual. House user manual. It just, and I would, I mean, I would argue that even low performance houses need it. I mean, everybody, oh, absolutely. You know, everybody, everybody cleans it. their gutters out on a regular basis. There are things you'd learn when you become a homeowner and we're just expected to have that steep learning curve when you become a homeowner. Whereas the car comes with a manual, you yeah. know, why, why, why the home building industry is so much different from the car industry is just fascinating. And to it's me. So, it'd be so cool if when you, so, so say it's like a big QR code on the backside of the mechanical room door, right? It's like a big tattoo that's there and you move in, you, you click that, the app pops up on your phone and it automatically puts stuff into your calendar of when you need to address certain things because invented a business for someone. We did. (laughs) We did. That would be amazing. It's like, not only does it sets your calendar, but then it gives you an app where you can, and it's set up into, you know, normal, regular things. And if you change something in the house, you can update that. And that, that continues to live on with the house. And then you don't have to like, oh, which drawer did we put such and such in and and look for it? Is it, you know, and every new phone that you have, I mean, they do that with insurance. So I don't know why you couldn't do it with, and yeah, maybe that's like, what insurance like companies should be doing. I, yeah, I feel like it has to exist and then just haven't found it or something. If someone knows about it, then tell us, please. Yeah, because the <laughs> other thing that I think that you should have to do as a builder, is, and, and I've seen some people doing this, like I love when I see Jake post things, uh, Jake Bruton post things on Instagram where they write on the walls, you know, they write certain things is 
walk around and snap pictures of all the walls so that if you have to dig up a plumbing something or you need to renovate um we're gonna do a topic on bs and beer that that talks about designing with renovation in mind like it's probably going to happen at some point and so if you have access to things that you need to get to one of the advantages of passive certification is photo documentation of the process. <laughs> yeah, see, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, that it should all be part of the user manual at the end of any project. It doesn't matter whether it's a code built house or it's a passive house or it's a net zero or a living building challenge or some of those certifications, like you said, with passive house, it's something that you, you do anyway, but um, yeah, a lot of it's just in the interaction with the certifier. You photo document what's happening during construction to make sure it's being implemented according to the design, which yeah. I think a lot of builders are probably doing as a, uh, I mean, I imagine a lot of builders are doing as a best practice kind of thing just to keep track of their sites. But yeah, having more formality to retaining that information and passing it on to the end user. Yeah, because what does the end user need to know? Um, that's um, you receive from the seventies, the double envelope houses. Have you ever seen any of those? Yeah. Um, there was one built that I did an energy audit on and it, it was clearly the second or third generation of homeowner that was living in it. They had no idea what it was. Like they had all the doors open to the sun space in the middle of the summer and they were growing plants out there. Like it was a greenhouse and it was wet in the basement and they had um, the, the I can't remember the flaps were wide open or something and they're they're blowing the dryer vent into the crawl space so they were basically just blowing all the dryer contaminants into the house that. and then circulating it around and um I was just like that was oh. one of my biggest reverse culture shock moments when we came from Europe to Colorado and the first rental I had like the <laughs> the hood over the stove vented into the wall cavity and I was like what <laughs> okay. a lot of them vent into the attic a lot of uh you know i've seen uh people's bathroom vent pipes vent into the attic and not out through the roof and you're just like oh oh whoa what happened here okay yeah no, <laughs> nope not this <laughs> um yeah so there there's so many things that that are completely different and so that must have been you you said you were in italy Yes. That must have been, uh, a, I mean, a that's a totally different climate. <laughs> like so different. Um, yeah, you know, well, with respect to, to climate and, and passive house, I feel like, um, that's another somewhat of a myth is there's this kind of, well, it, you know, it, we found it to be a myth here in the States when we came to the States that there's, uh, misconception about the um, application of certain building science methods based on climate zone. And the great thing about physics is that physics doesn't care what climate you're in. <laughs> and so when you're looking at a performance metric, really the reason we teach the why behind it is if you understand the building science behind it, you can apply that to any climate. Right. Um, so we got lucky in the sense that, you know, when we were training in passive and implementing it for the first time, um, we were in Reggio Emilia, which is um, in the Po Valley in northern Italy, and it is kind of one of the most difficult climates to design for because it's really humid, it's cold in the winter, super hot in the summer, um, so there's lots of considerations there, and coming to Colorado was like cakewalk. I mean, <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is just the perfect design climate. It's 
tons of solar radiation. It's relatively dry. It's got seasons. There's night cooling. I mean, it's just a beautiful, beautiful climate. So um, that was a bit of a, yeah, a bit of an adjustment, but in a good way. And <laughs> um, But, you know, we, we work on projects all over the place. We've got clients in Australia as well. And, um, you know, I think that Enrico would say, Enrico, my, my partner, he he's the the geek between us, you know, and he would, he would definitely say physics doesn't care about people and doesn't care about human politics of building codes and such. So as long as you understand the why behind the building science, um, you know, can apply it to anything. Yeah, I agree. That's why I um, always start with when people ask me, I'm like, start with building science 101, which is like, go back to the science and understand the science and then apply it to building. And all that science stuff that you maybe weren't super interested in when you learned it as straight up science becomes really cool because it relates to your building now. And then all of a sudden it just opens a whole new world. You know, like I've talked to people on the podcast who were like, I hated school. I wasn't good at school. I wasn't interested in it, but now they're so deep in the weeds in building science. I was like, you know, a lot of that stuff is all the stuff you hated before just applied to something that you found interesting. Like when I was in high school, I thought calculus was really stupid. It was just, it felt like a waste of time. Like you got an answer, but the answer didn't really apply to anything. Like I would play Tetris during calculus, but then I went to architecture school and I had to take structures classes. And all of a sudden the calculus that we used in structures classes just made a whole lot more sense and it got a lot more interesting. And so I think sometimes when you're just teaching is straight up thing. So then we'll start back at building science 101. And I always start with people are like, Oh man, I remember learning this in school. I'm like, right. But now apply it to what we're talking about and see how that becomes so much more interesting. And, and they really enjoy that. So that's why I always start with building science 101. And then just like, when I think, I think there's also, uh, you know, one of the, the goals with training builders to the passive standard is less about making sure that every builder becomes a physicist in their spare time, right. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's more about being able to see red flags, know that there are sequencing impacts and budget impacts that are going to happen and then knowing where to go to find the right resources. I mean, we advocate strongly relying on modeling and virtual prototyping early on in the process because you can fail a lot faster multiple times. I mean, I always draw the comparison to the aerospace industry. They're not building planes and then seeing if it flies and then building another plane, which is what we're doing. They're modeling it so that they can fail faster, more times, go through as many scenarios as possible, simulate how that's going to, you know, react to certain situations like infiltration and wind penetration, whatever. And, you know, it allows us to, if, if you're willing to shift your budget up a little bit to that design end, then you can save a lot of money on the build end, which, you know, I ask all the builders to just kind of think about how much of their buffer in their budget is because they've got to go back and fix stuff or there are mistakes that are made on site that need to be redone. But how much of that is like just kind of related to sequencing things that could have been flushed through in a virtual way earlier. Um, you know, if you look at the stats for production home builders and how much money they build into the sale of a home, with the assumption of warranty claims being <laughs> requested on that. I mean, that's super upsetting. We have a very reactionary industry. So the more we can get in front of it and start using a lot of the tools that up until now are really 
used by construction defect litigation, <laughs> you know, yeah. to find problems with stuff, those tools should be used in the design end of things to, to, you know, prevent stuff from happening. Yeah. I had a builder once say to me, there's never enough money to do it right the first time, but there always seems to be enough money to fix it the second time. And it's like, uh, yeah. Um, and I'm, as an architect, I've always been a big proponent of, um, the architect and the builder being on the same page because, um, you know, as a, as a design professional that if you gave the same set of plans to six different people, they'd all build it a different way. It doesn't matter how much information is in there. And so if we can get on board as a design team and you tell me how you work and I draw it the way you're actually going to build it. And that then when I want you to do something that's different from your norm for a, a performance metric spec, we can talk about why that's different. And it's not talking about, well, the architect put such and such in here and they either build it their own way and then things don't work out because they're doing things on the fly or they build it my way, which maybe is more expensive and didn't work as well because they just didn't tell me they could have done it in another way. And so when we start all working together, I don't do bid work anymore. And I say that to clients. I'm like, I want you to pick a builder during the design phase. Like maybe we'll get through schematic design right. just because they don't need to see 600 iterations of your ideas. But once we get to design development where we're really starting to talk about how we're going to build this house and what's going to go into it, your contractor needs to be on board and invested already because they're going to bring stuff to the table. Like <laughs> I say all the time, I'm like, I don't know everything. If I knew everything, I would be a lot richer. Um, so I'm going to learn something. You learn something on every project. And it's, it's hopefully that you learned something that went well and not that you learned something that really didn't work. But that's <laughs> somehow, some, sometimes that's how we learn. <laughs> that's really good. Yeah. So anyway, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, where can people find you? Um, I always put stuff in the show notes, but where can people find you um, and get in touch with you or take training with you guys uh, right now? Yeah. So our URL is www.emu, like the bird, E-M-U, dot systems. So not .com, dot .systems is the domain. Um, but most of you kind of uh, in your build, you know, be us in beer and the, and the, um, I assume there's a lot of overlap in your audience here yes, on your podcast as well. Um, we are all over Instagram. <laughs> so I am Emu Mariana, M-A-R-I-A-N-A, -A and my partner is Emu Enrico, and our company handle is um, Emu BLDG, Building Science. And yeah, we post stuff there all the time. I'll try to get up that, um, the, we took apart an ERV this last weekend. So I'll try to get that up here so folks can see that if they're interested. Yeah, that and would be great. We do have a few spots. We added more seats to our training for the summer crew and extended the deadline to next week. So we have a few spots left for folks wanting to do the summer crew training. Um, if anyone wants to do any of the fall in-person workshops, then this would be the crew that you'd want to join online to prepare for that. Okay. Um, yeah. So I think those are probably the best places to find us. And then the, I usually end with either a resource or a book that you like, or what's the one takeaway that you, that you hope people will take away to, you know, bring the bar up in building science. I mean, it's perhaps obvious, but education, you know, everything we do. Um, I'm, I'm a daughter of two teachers and <laughs> I just believe that everything, um, 
everything that businesses do to advance themselves needs to come from a place of education and knowledge. And so whatever you can do to, to expand your knowledge base is going to be an advantage that you have over competitors and, and just something that, you know, you can be proud of. That's awesome. Well, thank you for taking the time and talking with me today. Uh, and I really enjoyed having you on and love sharing the stuff you guys are working on because I think it's really exciting. Thank you. Yeah, we didn't we didn't touch on the female entrepreneurship. Much, oh, wait, wait, but... wait. We still have time. Let's do that. <laughs> but yeah, okay. So 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 what's your take on being a woman in the field of of construction? <laughs> my take on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I say your yeah. take on it because there's, there's been this thing they say, like they say that only 9% of uh, females are in construction, like just construction and 17% of registered architects are, are women. Um, and Christine um, from building science fight club made a good point is like, well, what is the percentage we want to see? Like, do we even care? Does it have to be 50, 50? And I was like, Oh yeah, right. It's not, but it makes you think like, is there a barrier to entry that we feel like we can't do it. So I also talked to a black architect a couple of weeks ago and I just said, is there a barrier to entry for architecture for you? And he's like, going into people's community and just saying, this is an opportunity that you have. Like, if you don't know it's an opportunity that you can take, maybe you don't take it. And so are we just not encouraging women? Um, so what was your experience and, and yeah. you know, has there been a barrier to entry or more of a struggle teaching contractors as a woman? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think I mentioned earlier, my, uh, my background was design, you know, I, I went for architecture school, which was pretty split 50, 50, at least at Wash U between men and women. Mm -hmm. And I never felt, you know, like I was at any real disadvantage from that perspective. Uh, then I moved to Italy <laughs> And it was a lot harder <laughs> um, for lots of lots of cultural reasons. I mean, I was young female American. <laughs> that right there <laughs> pretty much did it. It's a very hierarchical culture. Um, you know, there's the mentality that you put in 50 years before you're in a decision decision making position. And Enrico and I started our firm at like age, I think we were like 26 and 27. So it's just not done really. <laughs> so there were a lot of issues around that, that I found super difficult. Um, but I feel like my years in Italy prepped me pretty well for coming back to work more in construction side of things here in the States. Um, simply because, you know, there is, there's no doubt about it. There's kind of a good old boy club situation dynamic <laughs> that comes up, uh, you know, sometimes more often than other times. But, um, I think there's, I think I haven't, um, I'm kind of the personality type to just plow through it, <laughs> and, ignore it and, <laughs> and things will work out, you know? So it's definitely come up. Um, I, I think there are, potentially higher expectations of women in construction based on a higher judgment level and an assumption, you know, confirmation bias, whatever you want to call it, that, um, that, you know, we don't have the hands-on ability to, um, participate in the same way. And so, and, you know, I'm, like I said, my background's design. So I already have 
you know, some self-conscious, you know, things about that because that's right. not where I come from. Um, so, you know, I make it clear that, you know, my, my strengths that I can offer are that I understand building and I understand building science, but maybe I'm a little bit better at communicating it than you could be. So maybe if we team up on this, it's gonna, <laughs> it's gonna work out. Okay. And, um, yeah, I wouldn't say there's been any huge problems, but there's definitely, I mean, it is a, I would say on a weekly basis, you run into situations where stuff happens that I don't think would happen if I were a dude. <laughs> I see that too. You know, when I walk into, I think I said earlier, when I walk onto a job site, is it because I'm a woman that I'm afraid to ask? Like I, I hear my male counterparts be like, I walk on a job site and I stop and I talk to the plumber and I ask him what he's doing. And he's really interested in his craft and he'll tell me all about it. And I was like, really? I don't have that same experience. And I don't know if that's because I was not previously a builder. I don't know if that's because I'm a woman. I don't know. I started growing out my gray hair so people would stop asking me how old I was. Um, I had a contractor recently ask me in the politest way to try to figure out how old I was when I graduated from architecture school. <laughs> and I was like, 15 years ago. And he's like, no way. I'm like, yeah. I mean, I'm not yeah, as young as you think I am or, or, you okay, know, it's hard to say which of those factors, you know, the, the lesson basically is just don't judge a book by its cover, right? Whatever right. that cover is. <laughs> right. And I don't know which one of those factors that were, or if I'm harder on myself and I don't approach people because I think that that might be a reaction that I would have. And that I've found in, you know, in a lot of it that, that isn't always the reaction that you get. And I've made a lot of great relationships with other people and other builders and other people in the trades over time where I've gotten over some of that. But when I wanted to start my own business um, back in 2009, um, someone told me I was young and people would never hire me. And I hung on to that for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And that's really tough blow to your self-confidence when it's already hard enough to be entering into a field of people who you already feel like you don't belong to, you know, someone had asked me if I belong to, you know, a couple of the groups in, in the Portland, Maine area. And I'm like, when I moved here in 2007, it was the old boy network. And I just didn't want any part of that. <laughs> so I was like, well, I, think touched on, I think you touched on the, the most important thing is that it's the confidence level. And, um, for better or for worse, one of the issues that women face that maybe men don't always realize is that it's very difficult balancing act for women to come off as com confident but not arrogant. And men can be confident and be accepted a lot more easily. And yeah. women are more self you know, judging about that as well. One of the things I've really liked about the Passive Us community is that because um, it's you know, very generally speaking, folks that are wanting to learn and are open-minded to trying new things and trying to advance their own knowledge, you end up with them. They have low levels of confidence coming into it, right? Because they don't know passive coming into it. And so it's kind of this little journey we go on together and, and it ends up, um, you know, a lot better, but um, I'd, th I'd say the worst, you know, the, the, the worst run-ins I've had are, are with the more closed-minded end of the industry, you know? Yeah. And I think that sometimes, uh, especially being a woman in construction and then being a woman in building science in construction, where you're now trying to convince people who, uh, who 
aren't interested. <laughs> right. I mean, you guys have people who come to you because they are interested, which is great. But then when you go out and you're trying to convince the masses to, to do something different, you're now a woman and a woman asking you to do something that's really outside of your comfort zone. Um, that's when I start to see it. And that's when I, um, we've had this conversation recently about like, you know, do you really push the climate change? Like this is really important or do you push the comfort and all of that stuff? And we get better things because of it. Um, because there are some people that the minute you say climate change, the conversation is over. Yeah. And, and so, I think that's just knowing your audience and, yeah. um, really I, I would love to see more, um, of our industry start to embrace aspects of storytelling and understanding audience and just, you know, communication basics and the best builders are now, I know are the ones that communicate well. Right. Yeah. Male or female, male or female. <laughs> no, I, I agree. I mean, it goes back to that 80% communication thing and there might be actually a lot more women who are better at construction because they're good at communication. Because how many times have you been on a job site where, you know, you've worked with a contractor that doesn't have an office person and they don't answer the phone and they can't get back to you during building season until 10 o'clock at night. And then they can't call you because it's 10 o'clock at night. And it's like, you know, the, the whole, that they can't interrupt their job site during the middle of the day because then things don't get done is that the whole communication aspect of of construction and what you might do in construction you know like we both came from a design background you got into more construction i went into um you know a continued design avenue there have been people I don't know if you've not necessarily presented that way to you when you're a young female getting into this i don't remember construction being a path that was set in front of me right <laughs> yeah. I know one female electrician, one, it's the only one I know. I mean, maybe there are more, but I don't know any, you know, and it's <laughs> like, there, there's so many things that you can do in the world of construction that aren't swinging a hammer or installing insulation. And that's, I think, just what people think and that they're not taking pride in this craftsmanship that is construction that has so many facets. And so that's why I like to have women or other people uh, on the podcast really just say like, like you said, you push through it. You, the barrier to entry is just telling, <laughs> yeah, it's just telling other people that this is an avenue that you can take and it's perfectly fine. Yeah. And yeah. that there are people out there that you can work with and that you're always kind of run into people, no matter what industry that you're in, that are difficult to work with and are bad communicators. <laughs> so <laughs> you just, you know, you, you, you get rid of them until you build the team that you, that you enjoy working with. So but. for sure. Well put. Yeah. I appreciate you uh, reminding me that we forgot to talk about that because I usually like we to are women. <laughs> we are women and we're pushing the face of the building industry. It is cool to be in construction. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to the E3 podcast. I hope you guys have been enjoying these episodes as much as I have. I've had some really interesting guests, a lot of great professionals in the building science and architecture and building realm. So thank you to all the guests that have been on. If you're enjoying the podcast, like and share on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or leave me a comment on the website. And if there's somebody you'd like to hear from or you'd like me to have on the podcast, send me an email, emily at matramarch.com. Otherwise, have a fantastic weekend and we'll see you again next week.